What does it take to put a smile on the faces of your audience, even when you've got no particular gift for comedy? In this episode, we're looking at the role that humour plays in effective communication. It's a particularly useful skill in business, where dry presentations and cold transactional language can strip the joy out of work. This is less about telling jokes than finding humorous material in the everyday world and weaving it into structured talks and informal conversations. So get ready for some miscommunication, some criminal networking behaviour and a healthy dose of good-natured banter. Welcome to Leaning Forward, I'm Andrew Thorpe. I was always a huge fan of the two Ronnies, Barker and Corbett. If you've never watched their Four Candles sketch, you are in for a treat. Comedy writer uh, Barry Cryer put Ronnie Corbett in the same category as Eric Morecambe and Tommy Cooper, and people with funny bones. In Cryer's view, Ronnie C was a natural comedian who could act in contrast with Barker, who was a, an actor with a facility for comedy. When it comes to business and workplace relationships, um, humour can be an antidote for stress, um, a way for colleagues to bond, and a, and a method for removing tension from a situation. You can change the vibe of a meeting, uh, give some light relief from a dry presentation, and you can make the audience warm to you and to your ideas. But only if you do it well. And we've all seen it done badly, and, and goodness me, it can be excruciating to watch. The big boss who tries to crack a joke at the start of a speech, but it completely bombs. Gentle teasing can strengthen relationships, but if it's ill-judged, it can wound its target and cause irreparable damage. It's hardly surprising that many people shy away from using humour. They um, disqualify themselves with, um, oh, I'm just not a funny person. Uh, I'm really hopeless at telling stories. And in fairness to them, humour is a tricky thing. After all, not everyone finds the same thing amusing. Two people can watch the same comedy routine and have completely contrasting opinions of what they've just heard. Now, that could be down to cultural differences, of course, or, or just simply personality types and maybe individual preference. There's a guy called Peter McGraw who gives a fascinating TEDx talk about humour. And he's figured out that for something to be funny, it must have two components. It's got to be unthreatening and it's got to subvert expectations. And I'll explain what's meant by this as we go through some examples. But I do believe there's a fairly reliable way to use humour, not just in social settings, but in business as well. But it does require 
a few key things. So, for example, you have to be able to spot the material in the first place to see things in the world around you that people are likely to find funny. You've got to be able to relate them in such a way that you get a nice reaction. Um, And of course, you have to choose the right material for the right situation. And you've got to somehow position it into a talk or a, a casual conversation so it doesn't sound awkward or out of place. Now, in this episode, we're going to focus on the first one primarily, finding the material. And we'll examine the other ones on separate occasions. But when it comes to content... The good news is that there is plenty of it around. And there are also lots of examples of it being used well on TV and YouTube. So I'm going to provide some examples of this material and suggest a way of categorising them. And that might help you to spot things as you go about your daily lives. I read um, a lovely story a while ago about our former Prime Minister in the UK, Gordon Brown. And he'd left number 10 um, sometime before, and like many politicians before him, he was working his way into the the speaking circuit. But it was quite early days, and apparently one of his first gigs was to speak to a group of about 100 old-age pensioners in Scotland. And he agreed with the organiser that he'd do about three quarters of an hour. And he did all his preparation. He chose topics that he thought would interest his audience and things like health care, disability allowance, inheritance tax and so forth. And come the big day, um, all eyes are on him as he stands on the stage. And, you know, he looks out and there's a, a sea of silver haired people with spectacles. And things seem to go quite well at first. But about 15 minutes into his talk he noticed that the audience seemed a little restless. They seemed to be distracted. Um, People were were looking across the room towards the buffet table. And things got so bad that after about 20 minutes, he took the decision to cut things short and he ended his talk um, early. So after a bit of um, thank you for listening and uh, any questions, they all got up and made a beeline for the food. And Gordon said he'd never seen old people move this fast before. He went up to the organiser and um, he said, I I don't know what went wrong. You know, I was all set to do my 45 minutes and they didn't seem interested. And the organiser sighed and he said, oh, Gordon, I asked you to do four to five minutes. And by the way, that was in a magazine called The Week Um, And there is some great material in there. And I like that story because it's got a nice build up. Uh, We're wondering what the problem is. We suspect it might have something to do with the food, but we're not quite sure why. And then there's a lovely reveal and then bang, the payoff. It's a simple example of an amusing anecdote. And of course, you could use it to make a number of serious points um, about the importance of clear communication, um, good preparation, even the benefits of self-deprecation when it comes to people warming to you. Um, Because now, presumably, he's comfortable telling that story. But I'd also include it in the first of my comedy categories, um, and that's miscommunication. Our world is full of them. 
Uh, Someone waves to you. You wave back, but you can't quite place them. And then you realise they were waving at someone behind you. I met entrepreneur Peter Jones once, you know, he of Dragon's Den fame. And it was an exhibition in London. um, And my then business partner and I were there to promote uh, our newly minted company, Mojo Life. And it was about helping people to find their mojo through a a change of career, maybe to turn a a personal passion into a business. And I was, um, I must admit, I was a bit nervous when I met the big man, and he is big, um, six feet, eight inches. He towers over you, and I'm just over six feet tall. And after we'd explained what the business was about, he turned to me and he said, um, so your business shrinks. And I suddenly felt a bit panicky. Was he saying that our business was somehow doomed to get smaller? Had he spotted a, a flaw in our concept? Oh my God, that, that's what dragons do. They spot the, the flaw in the idea. Did it contain the seeds of its own destruction? And he obviously noticed my anxiety and he said, no, 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 you, d- you don't understand. I mean, your business psychologists, your business shrinks. In other words, it was a it was an eat shoots and leaves moment. You know, I'd heard your as the possessive, whereas he meant you are with an apostrophe. And it's just one of those countless occasions where two parties are on a totally different path. And you get this a lot with language. The world of translation or um, intercultural exchange is rich in stories of misunderstandings. Look in the humour section of your local bookstore and you'll see books like Eat Shoots and Leaves by Lynn Truss, um, a bestseller about hyphens and semicolons, for goodness sake. Or you might see the book of silly exam answers where the the examiner and the student are clearly not on the same page. And one of my favourites is, um, um, where was the American Declaration of Independence signed? Um, And the answer from one student was at the bottom. Now, these misunderstandings um, can obviously have serious consequences sometimes, but uh, I mean, let's be honest, they're something of a gift when it comes to humour. Now, let's move to a second category, and it's another miss, this time mismatches. And it's where two things don't really go together. Um, A large man with a tiny dog. Um, Donald Trump, um, a man with a, a big ego and a big important job, uh, sitting on what, what looked like a kiddie's table with the presidential crest on it. That really happened in a, in a press conference. Um, Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie Twins. And if you're old enough to remember the Morecambe and Wise show like I do, um, you'll recall how they had um, serious guests on the show, people like Peter Cushing, um, Andre Previn, Shirley Bassey, doing daft things alongside a pair of clowns. Um, the Office, the, the, the British series that Ricky Gervais and um, Stephen Merchant were behind, um, Ricky Gervais always believed that the comedic element um, that underpinned the whole show was the enormous chasm between the way that David Brent saw himself and the way everyone else did. 
You also see examples of um, humorous juxtaposition in, in newspaper headlines or billboards. Um, I think there was one I saw on the Internet. It was a, on a big billboard, a warning about the dangers of childhood obesity. And it was right next to a McDonald's commercial. And in all these cases, the comedy comes from contrast. There's nearly always humour when you have a contrast between the way things are and the way things should be. An important third category would be stereotypes. Now, of course, comedians have been using these for years, um, and clearly some of them would now be seen as ill-judged or maybe even downright offensive. But there are... I think some fairly safe targets, um, like an incompetent burglar uh, or a reckless motorist, um, you know, people for whom we probably feel little sympathy. And all those examples where the teasing comes from uh, a place of affection. And I I remember watching a a TED talk a while ago about the use of gentle comedy. Um, And the speaker starts with a small story about his grandmother who apparently had recently discovered the joys of texting. Um, And the only thing was that she'd started to use the abbreviation WTF. And her grandson pulled her up on this. He said, Grandma, you shouldn't be using terms like that. And she said, why not? It just means, well, that's fantastic. And and yes, it plays to a stereotype. And of course, it, it could also be in the miscommunication category but it strikes me as a a gentle um piece of uh, of comedy um and shared out of warm affection for his grandmother i i could see her telling her friends about this and having a good giggle i've done a lot of networking over the years and i've also watched a lot of david attenborough series on the tv and um, now what's one got to do with the other you might ask well it struck me a while ago that the a lot of the worst networking behavior that you see could almost be described in animalistic terms and i came up with with 12 networking stereotypes so for example you've got the meerkat this is the person who loses interest in you when they realise that you're not really in the in the business of, of buying from them. Uh, and they stretch their neck up and look over your, your, your shoulder to scan the room for someone else to speak to. You've got the lion, um, a predator, always on the hunt for business. And they, they see you as potential prey. They're almost sort of licking their lips in anticipation. And then there's man's best friend, um, the the person who you can't shake off. Uh, You know, you show some interest in them and then you regret it because they follow you everywhere. And I shared this um, as a blog um, at the time and it generated quite a bit of interest. It it played to uh, a stereotype, you know, people for whom, again, we we probably felt little sympathy. Um, And I also got a lot of emails from people who were somewhat alarmed because they saw some of these behaviours in themselves. And of course, one key characteristic of stereotypes is exaggeration, a bit like a a cartoon or a caricature. Um, And the reason it works is because we recognise it so readily, and it, it doesn't really bother us that the truth has been a little stretched. And of course, you get an exaggeration in storytelling as well. So instead of saying um, the town looked deserted during lockdown, 
Um, you might say that it was like a scene from a, a post-apocalyptic movie, you know, 28 days later or something. It was so eerie. We know it wasn't quite like that, but your description evokes more of a response from the audience when you describe it that way. And now um, a slightly more complicated sounding category, but I think you'll get what I mean in a minute. It's, let's talk about um, subversion and misdirection. A lot of humour comes from the subversion of expectation, things not going the way we, the audience, assume they will. And in dramatic storytelling, you, you create um, expectation by introducing a, a cliché or a, a trope of some kind. So think of the movie um, Life of Brian, um, the Monty Python film that was set in ancient Rome. There's a, a terrific scene where Brian, who's played by Graham Chapman, is, is painting anti-Roman messages, graffiti, um, on a wall in the town square in the middle of the night um, as an act of defiance. Um, and then some Roman soldiers approach him from behind, uh, led by John Cleese. And he's about to be caught in the act. And we fully expect that Brian is going to get at least a severe beating. But instead, Cleese's character berates Brian for his poor Latin and proceeds to give him a lesson in correct grammar. And not only that, he tells Brian to write it out correctly 100 times by the morning. And you suspect that the joke comes from the Python's public school upbringing, um, where I guess Latin was rather rammed down their throats, but it's a, a wonderful example of subverted expectation. A misdirection is a similar thing. And there's a lovely story told by the South American um, actor Salma Hayek um, on a, a talk show that uses this technique. And I, I put a link in the clip or, or a link to the clip in the episode notes. And the story combines her habit of taking in abandoned animals because she feels sorry for them with trying to convince her husband that she was having an affair with another man. And I won't tell you any more because I'd like you to watch the clip, but she's a great storyteller and she misdirects us wonderfully. We, we think it's going in this direction and then she suddenly veers over there. And of course, her timing is impeccable so that she gets a big laugh. The fifth category that I've chosen is poking fun um, and you might call it teasing or ribbing. And generally speaking, the safest target for teasing or mickey-taking is yourself. Although admittedly it's not the same across all cultures, a bit of self-deprecation can go a long way to making you a, a warm and likeable character. But it works best when you're secure in yourself. President Obama would frequently point out his big ears or his rapidly greying hair during his time in the White House. And there was a wonderful moment on the Graham Norton show, and you know, I spend an inordinate amount of time getting my material from there, um, where the singer, uh, Ed Sheeran, was being introduced by the host uh, with the usual build-up, you know, award-winning singer, songwriter, top-selling artist, blah, blah, blah. And it was all a bit much for Ed because he pulled out his phone he said, hang on a minute, have a listen to this. 
And he played an old recording of his, a, a song he'd written in the very early part of his career. And it was a bit pants, frankly. And his voice, um, you know, in the words of it, like a TV judge, was a bit pitchy. But it says something about a big star that they can point out their flaws. And, and we almost expect that now on, on talk shows. Of course, in business, there's a bit of fear around revealing a weakness or sharing an embarrassing moment. And, but if you choose the right story and the right moment and you reveal that weakness from a position of strength, um, you come across as both likeable and confident in yourself. And you see this a lot at the start of great TED Talks from people like um, Brené Brown or Sir Ken Robinson and um, Ernesto Ciroli. And again, there are links in, in the description. It's also unusual for a company to fess up um, to making a major mistake. At worst, you might see a cover-up or at least an attempt to minimise the story. But there was a rare exception in uh, 2018 when Kentucky Fried Chicken had a problem with its supply chain in the UK and they temporarily ran out of chicken. And they got a lot of criticism in the press and they decided that the best way to diffuse the situation was to poke fun at themselves. So they released a series of full page adverts with an altered logo. So that KFC was now FCK. So, yep, we messed up and we're sorry. And it was generally considered to be a winning strategy. But when it comes to teasing others, you've got to be quite careful. If you're secure in your relationship with them, if it clearly comes from a place of affection and you know they're comfortable with the thing that you point out, it can work as a kind of um, social glue. There's good intention behind it. It's uh, in no way is it designed to wound and I'd be interested to know what you make of an exchange um, on, yes, yes, again, the Graham Norton show. And between three very well-known stars, it's, uh, it was between David Walliams, um, Peter Capaldi, who you might know as, as Doctor Who, um, and of course Tom Hanks. Now, normally teasing or Mickey taking works better when it's done sideways or upwards, um, but on this occasion, multiple Oscar winner and Hollywood A-lister Hanks is the one that's teasing David Walliams, who, who is frankly someone a little bit lower down the celebrity food chain. And it's all about the topic of Oscars. Hanks has two. Um, Capaldi, rather surprisingly, has one. Uh, and Walliams... And as with the Salma Hayek story, uh, I, I don't want to describe the details here because it's a fabulous clip um, to watch. But to appreciate that bit of teasing, you've got to understand what came before, uh, the build-up, the context. And also Hanks is widely regarded um, in the industry as warm-hearted and generous um, sometimes described as a modern-day Jimmy Stewart and incredibly popular with the public. And Walliams is, of course, very successful in his own right, and he, he seems to handle the banter 
perfectly well. There's also a, a lovely bit afterwards where Williams reveals that his mother is a huge Tom Hanks fan. She's actually in the audience and Hanks goes up to her in the audience, gives her a big hug, but he still can't resist teasing her son um, one more time. I want to finish with one more category, and that's um, absurdity. Because sometimes there's just nothing for it but to laugh at the sheer ridiculousness of something. And I'll finish with a theme that you'll often find in the absurd category, and that's signs that don't make any sense. And here's my favourite one, um, a sign which says, quite simply, um, warning, this sign has sharp edges. I rest my case. We are only scratching the surface of what is a massive topic, but I, I wanted to at least give you some useful tips about where you might find material in the world around you. And provided you use it well, um, it can make you a much more entertaining speaker um, and good company as well. So we'll look at the art of using that material in real life situations in future episodes. But that's all for now from Leaning Forward. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the future.